Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Free speech and academic freedom are at the heart of universities, but when in isolation, these principles can lead to deadlocked situations with a clash of conflicting values. Robert Quinn is the director of the international NGO and network Scholars at Risk, which advocates for academic freedom, freedom of speech, and also assists scholars from all around the world who are persecuted for their views, offers them placement and protects them. Robert explained to me that the values that frame university debates should be more than academic freedom and free speech. They should include equitable access, accountability, autonomy, and social responsibility. And when taken together, they constitute something rather unique and very radical, which is the university. I spoke with him about the best way to implement and enforce these interlocking values to protect what universities do best, which is to be critical arbiters of truth in democratic societies. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. I'm really happy to have Rob Quinn, director of the organization Scholars at Risk, on the show today. First of all, thank you, Rob, for coming to talk to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Rob, you have a background in the law, and you have a PhD as well, and you run a large network this organization, Scholars at Risk, that advocates for, monitors, protects academic freedom around the world in a comprehensive sense. And we had a conversation two years ago, which I remember actually quite vividly, where you said, and you've written about this now as well, that the threat to academic freedom around the world is serious, ought to be taken seriously. And the second thing you said, and I thought about this a lot, you said the free speech lens is not the right one to really get to what is at stake with and in the university. Can you give me a bit of a sense of what your understanding is of the university as a particular place and why it's so important, the work you do, to protect that space, not to insulate it, but to keep it because it does something really different from other spaces? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I came into Scholars at Risk at the very beginning, but I was brought in, and that was roughly 20 years ago now, so I've always looked at our work and my role 
almost from an outsider's perspective on higher education, from a lawyer's perspective, to the extent that I was essentially hired to defend the space, to defend the value of academic freedom in that space. So my first question was why hasn't there been more effective, robust defense of this space? And looking at it from an outsider's world, you see the space is really complicated. Mm -hmm. It's a multi-layered space. We have these shared values of shared governance and so forth. We're supposed to be connected to the state but independent from the state. So it's a very, very complicated space. And then within the middle of that space, we have this nugget of values that are supposed to guide us in all of that <laughs> complexity, right? The outside doesn't see it that way. And often the incidents that we would see, especially on U.S. campuses but even around the world, they get narrowed down to one dimension which is the speech dimension domestically or mm -hmm. expression outside. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think that that's too narrow a lens because it doesn't get at the richness of the space and therefore it makes it difficult for us to resolve some of the incidents because they, essentially it becomes a false binary, mm -hmm. right? A win-lose proposition, right. which is not what the academic space is supposed to be about, right? It's supposed to be a dialogue. Right. It's supposed to be pedagogical. And that's not a win-lose and win-lose is not how we advance knowledge, right? Yes, some ideas get accepted and some get dismissed, but usually pieces of one get taken and pieces of another get taken and so forth. So when you talk about this, the complexity part, and universities have gotten more complex, if anything, probably over the last 50 or 100 years. And the other part, you said there's a nugget of values at the center. If we could say the complexity, yes, we recognize this. There's so many different constituents. I think in, in the U.S., also people look at it also as a, a business. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly expensive for a lot of people. It does serve some 16 million students in really different institutions, from community colleges to elite research institutions, et cetera. But the values in the middle of it, do they touch all parts of this? And if you could talk a little bit about that, because it's, as you said, it's not just this moniker of free speech that we're protecting. It's much more than that. Yeah, I mean, well, I think the short answer is they better touch all of it. Yeah. Because if the values don't touch all of it, then the modern university is going to be competing against corporations as a knowledge generator. Right. And we're going to lose what is the public dimension of universities, that we're generating knowledge not just for profit, not just for the subset that has access to it because they've subscribed to the access to that right. information. We're generating knowledge for everyone. So that's the unique mission piece. And the values are what allow that to stay anchored. And so I do think, at least in the well-resourced parts of the world, The challenge has been funding models behind higher education have either squeezed out those values or we've taken them for granted and haven't focused on them as much. So, mm -hmm. so what are those values? In the outside world, on the street, we talk about free speech. In the campus, we usually talk about academic freedom. Right. But that was always uncomfortable to me in the beginning as I was trying to understand this space because most of the incidents are very hard to really get all of the angles on if you only talk about academic freedom. So increasingly, I started talking more about university values or core values, of which academic freedom is only one. So the others are equitable access, accountability, autonomy, social responsibility. So those five or some variant on them are what I describe as university values. So can, can we break those down a bit? So, yeah. so um, if you give me the five and sort of explain what they are, because I can sort of, so, I can't make sense that quickly. <laughs> well, so let's go back one half right. step and say, why do we have academic freedom? And right. why should the broad public and states support the idea of academic freedom? Right. 
And I think the rather simple version is that it, it allows us to generate top quality research and teaching, which then supports future generations. Mm -hmm. So there's a mm -hmm. public benefit dimension to having academic freedom. And you mean this touches all areas from, let's say, because the university is sort of structured in certain ways, from the hard sciences or natural sciences to the professional schools, let's say, to the humanities. So all the range to the arts. So everything should be touched by this. So it's not one narrow definition of usable knowledge. All of them, all of them. And it's definitely not just usable knowledge. And it also goes into the spaces that we might talk more about as creative expression, mm -hmm. but are still connected to the generation of knowledge and mm -hmm. ideas and mm -hmm. sharing. right? And there are boundaries there, and those are fun boundaries to play with. But at the end of the day, it's that questioning exercise that is right. sanctioned by society, even when it's uncomfortable, but right. not grounded in just raw opinion, but grounded in knowledge and evidence and discourse and challenging and questioning. Mm -hmm for the benefit of society, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So if we don't have the values anchoring, well, then we're Google, but a slower version of Google, mm -hmm. generating knowledge for profit that we may share with the public if there's a profit angle on it. Mm -hmm. But if not, we may not, right? And the difference would be in a kind of, this is actually useful, Google does not really necessarily have a mandate to produce knowledge that actually is equitably distributed all across society or advances anything. If it's just a lot of information out there, that's Google would be fine with that. If it's just pure information, lots and lots of it, that could serve a business model quite well, right? And we're seeing that with the large IT companies, information companies, right? They're beginning to wrestle because at least in the hearts and minds of some of their founders, there was a values component. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they're now being challenged, their values component against their business model. Right, right. And how do they work right. through that? Right. And it's extremely complicated. Right. But to put it grossly, yes, their business model to date has been the quality of the ideas doesn't matter. It's how many eyes can we generate right. from the production or distribution. of And so this is quite different from a university, where actually it's not just how many people talk about it, but is it worth continuing talking about this particular thing? And if so, are there ways of advancing this or deepening this? And so in some ways, the IT companies and the universities are interesting because they're both wrestling with the curation problem, right? Mm -hmm. So the IT companies wanted to start saying, we're not curators. We don't do that. We're just distributors. And that's beginning to fall apart because they're saying that's not holding up to the values they're claiming or that their customers insist that they have. Right. Right? In the university, we're a little uncomfortable saying it, but we're in the curating business. Right? The question is, what are the rules by which we curate? And are we being intellectually honest mm -hmm. with each other when we do that? Mm -hmm. and so that's where we get back to, if we just use the academic freedom right. lens, it's too narrow. So you said there's roughly five sets of values. Yeah. So the other ones that then they work together, these five we're going to talk about, right? So they, they have to support each other or they have to sort of interconnect. Otherwise, one overrides everything and then it becomes a version of a tech company, for example. Well, it will gravitate towards binaries. Mm -hmm. It will gravitate, I have a right to say this. Right. I have a right to publish this as a trump that ends the conversation. Rather than, of course you do, but... Where does it take us? Mm -hmm. Where does it take the conversation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the one that I think appropriately is very much on people's minds today is equitable access, right? Curating, if everybody's not allowed to be in on the process, mm -hmm. is a problem. It creates bias. It creates unknown bias that we didn't even know we weren't addressing the needs or ideas mm -hmm. of different populations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So equitable access, who gets to be in the higher education space to be mm -hmm. in a part of mm -hmm. this process? has to be factored in. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of the incidents that we see on U.S. campuses recently, the demands we're hearing from students are really grounded in equitable access. So 
break this down or give me another word for that. It's a bit abstract, equitable uh, access, because well, it doesn't mean everybody gets to be there, right? It doesn't. So it's not equal access. It's yeah. not universal access, yeah. right? But the equitable part there is, in part, recognizing that there is a performance dimension to coming into higher education. You have to be ready for it. You have to be ready to participate actively, mm -hmm. right? And that's either at a different level if you're a student versus a professional academic mm -hmm. or so forth. But part of that also is recognizing historical inequity and making sure that we as a society are finding ways to create the entry points to draw in people who have been historically excluded. And it's behind this idea, what you just said, that everybody has access, so there shouldn't be rules for people who had been historically excluded. For example, the largest segment probably has always been women mm -hmm. who were not given access to higher education for millennia, really. But it's really that people could contribute who have been excluded in the interest of advancing knowledge. It's not just for their own sake and their legal, moral, social rights, but also because their contributions would be valuable. Well, it is a mix, right? So in the modern university and the business models that we have, some of it is for individual advancement, right? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that mm -hmm. for people striving to get the next generation in so they can move forward. But yeah, why do we as a society, as a public, support these institutions and create special supports for them? It's for the public good, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. even if you want to take a very narrow version from among the elite that was always in or mm -hmm. has been in for a while, the knowledge produced will be biased if we don't have all the perspectives okay. in the room. Right, right? Right. So the outcomes will be less legitimate right. if we don't have all right, the voices right, in. Right, right? Right. So historically, we've been dealing with that a lot for the last 30 or 40 years. And now what's interesting is we have one of the most diverse young generation in the space, and they want to talk about this more too. And so when I look at the incidents, I see not a rejection of any one of the values, mm -hmm. but an attempt to reconcile these values mm -hmm. in a way that I think they could benefit from adults engaging with them on it too and professionals and so forth. And benefiting from what you're doing too is a clearer articulation that these values ought to be grounding all decisions and ultimately and be articulated and critically examined all the time. Because what all you're saying, time. you're pointing out values that I'm not totally positive anybody who enters a university would be able to name them really. One of my pet projects at the moment is that we don't do onboarding training, right? As a profession, we don't do it for new professors. We don't do it for students, right? So I come from law. You have to do ethical training, right? And you have to do it every so often, right? Medicine, you have to do it. Journalism, you have to do it. We don't teach what academic freedom is. So you're assumed to understand it when you come in. Right. And I think that leads to a lot of the incidents. The flag of academic freedom is sometimes being waved over things that aren't really academic freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, we sometimes have authorities, including well-meaning university administrators, declaring things are not academic freedom, which actually are. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think we could benefit right. from some clarity on these things. And to go back to this, you're stressing these are values. You're not mm -hmm. saying these are laws, rules. There's a book that guides us in this way. It's more or deeper than that. You said there's oh. several. There's this equitable access. There's academic freedom writ large. There's accountability. or So accountability of institutions, particularly if we are looking for public support of these institutions mm -hmm. in all kinds of various forms, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we see this in the incidents where you see legislative officers or executive mm -hmm. officers start to threaten mm -hmm. the funding of an institution, right? Mm -hmm. Because they didn't like what this professor did or that and so forth and so on. It's not inappropriate for public authorities or for the public 
to right. inquire about how institutions that are using public support are using it. Right. right. So there's a give and take there. Institutions need to be transparent and show that they're managing the resources that are given to them well. And I think it's important maybe to point out that in the U.S., there are public institutions, public universities, land-grant big universities, but then there are also private institutions that depend to up to 30% of their budget is federal funding. Mm -hmm. So one could even say even very wealthy institutions or not so wealthy smaller liberal arts colleges even, they get a lot of federal funding. So we're not just talking about public universities that have a board that's sitting in the state legislature, but this is public funding. which And the other thing it touches on is federal financial aid. So it's a very direct, huge impact on a higher education that it goes directly to families and students. So public education yeah. is not just the public university of such particular state, but it's a really wide area of funding for higher education. Yeah, and when we're talking about the U.S., we're talking about an exceptionally complicated sector, right? right? Yeah. Ranging from you know two-year community colleges right. all the way up to your top right. research right. institutions, right? So it's very complicated. You have faith-based institutions right. that will have restrictions on academic freedom, but if they're in their charters, everybody knows right. it and so forth right. and so on. Outside, there are complexities right. in different places, mm -hmm. probably not as an overall complex ecosystem in most other places, you know, as we have here. But mm -hmm. so the, the main point, though, is even beyond the financial mm -hmm. accountability, when I look at it from the point of view of how do I create a defense for academic freedom? How do I create a defense for the university space when it's doing things that are legitimately controversial or upsetting, not for the purpose of being upsetting, but for the purpose of generating knowledge? You have to talk about the public. We have to get the public to understand why mm -hmm. those things are happening, and we have to get the public to want to defend this space. And a lot of your work to just and we'll get there, and we're still here, but the, the, the last two values here. But in a lot of other countries, the tension is maybe more pronounced that universities become a critical site in a culture or in a country that articulates critical things toward the government. And there's direct government suppression. So in some ways, in, in our country, we have complicated, as you said, it's such a complex space. And yeah, and the government is pretty upset with universities. You could say the Trump administration is pretty upset with universities. Yeah. <laughs> they don't think we're doing what we ought to be doing in universities. But it's different from other countries. Very different in a, because there are extreme cases of, of universities really being threatened by the government directly. What I like to say is that the manifestations are different, right? But stepping back... What we're asking for when we ask for academic freedom to exist is revolutionary, right? It's nothing less than revolutionary. We're asking for society to allow as an entity that exists something whose job it will be to critique authority, mm -hmm. whether that's government authority or non-government authority, whether it's family authority or religious authority. But we're saying we're going to have this engine of critique that's going to challenge everything we thought we knew. And if we're wrong, it's going to tell us, right? And we want you to support it, and we want you to protect it. And right? we want you to send your children there. And we want you to send your children there. I think that's an important there. part of it, actually. Of course that it I think is. Because yeah. it's supposed to train the next generation. So I'm supposed to send my kids into a place whose function, you just said, is to critique authority. But I'm in a relation of authority to my own children, yeah. first of all. And secondly, I'm not sure if I want my children to question the system that I've grown up in myself. Exactly right. And what's more sensitive than that, right? So I was thinking about it literally walking over here. I said, my parents were the first generation in my family to go to college, right? And then I go to university. And Where was this? Where did they go to college? Uh, they went to Villanova and College of St. Elizabeth, right. so both religious-based. Yes. 
I then don't. I go to a, a secular-based institution, right. and it's clear that some of the ideas I come home with are challenging to them, right? Right. They're and saying, we're paying for this, we're sending you there, and we're supposed to support and protect right. this critique right. of our way of living and or our belief system. One of the particular <laughs> conversations I had, I remember with my mother as we were talking, and it was around religion and so forth, and I kept using the word universe. You know, the universe, this and that. And she goes, why do you keep using the universe? Why can't you just say God, right? Because of all of the learning I did, that word was so confined by different, right. there were so many different meanings that it, I couldn't articulate the idea through that. But there's just one generational yeah. example, right? So you're absolutely right. There's it was probably for your mother, not just because it would be more accurate, because there's an entire value system behind that. And right. she probably felt you're substituting and you're moving away from something that is deeply important. So I don't want to yeah. put on to her either. So they weren't. Right. It wasn't a terribly dogmatic upbringing. Right, right, right. It was but much more of a cultural upbringing. But yeah. you're certainly right. In places where it's still a very dogmatic or a very religious content based, the challenge is even much greater. And we do see that around the world, where we see a lot of the threats that scholars and students experience. The attacks are not state driven; they're community driven, because of this revolutionary transformation part. And on the flip side of this, this is why we see in places where the future of a place is contested, mm. the university is a battleground, right? Because th they know that the future is being shaped in these places, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. The family dimension of this book, but at the bottom line is what we're asking for is revolutionary. Okay. To have this thing. Why would exist. anybody support this? Well, because <laughs> the truth is that it does lead forward. Okay. Right? It does lead to innovation, right? Yeah. And yeah. theoretically, if we live up to it well, on an individual level, it also leads to greater fulfillment and happiness, and you get to mm -hmm. be more of who you can be, right? Mm -hmm. And you use mm -hmm. more of your abilities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's just a very destabilizing thing. So, But this part, I, I just want to stay with this for a moment. When you say it's a revolutionary project, I think a lot of people would sort of shrink away from that and say, I'm not engaged in a revolution. I teach physics or I teach, you know, literature or the fine arts or journalism or engineering, whatever. But I think it's interesting oh. what you're saying. What is the revolutionary dimension of this, really, aside from society may change radically? So connected to that is the question of when I ask, when you ask the question, do you have academic freedom, right? And sure, depending on where you teach yeah. and depending on what department you're in, you might say, of course I do. But in other places, you say, I don't know. Right? And in other places, you say, I know I can't teach X. Mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. I can't ask mm -hmm. Y. Right? Mm -hmm. And it's always on the margins where we discover we're engaged in a revolutionary process. Okay. Right? Okay. Those of us that are in the middle of the circle may not know it, yeah. but we're in a process that is itself transformative. Well, right? that's why Scholars at Risk is, it's always been so important for me to observe because there are extreme cases terrible cases in many instances, sometimes great cases of better outcomes, but they show us what we assume or take for granted or don't really question. They, they are the test cases for yeah. everything you're saying. They're yeah. not outliers and this is just an aberration. This touches on what the university is really engaged with. But this is where, and to bring it back, I say the manifestations mm -hmm. of this revolutionary dynamic are different in different places. Mm -hmm. But the essence of it is we're at the intersection of power and ideas. And that happens everywhere, hmm. right? It happens in families, it happens in classrooms, it happens in societies, it happens within states, right? Mm -hmm. Ideas are generated, and inevitably some of those are going to challenge existing power. So that's a good thing, because if we don't challenge existing power, we don't develop new knowledge, we don't explore, we don't innovate, because by definition, what exists is in the way, right? right, right. So 
but the manifestations are what the issue is. From scholars at risk point of view, yes, most of our work is focused on the extreme. So one of the ways to look at it is we're trying to shift the manifestations from violence and killing and imprisonment over to lawsuits, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And in the places where there's harassing through lawsuits, we're trying to push it over to disagree disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to shift those manifestations because we're not going to change that essential es essence of mm -hmm. the conflict. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's there. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. But I really would emphasize it's not an over there problem. Mm -hmm. I had my eyes opened to this and I'm confessing my bias that I experienced, which really helped me early on in, in this work. I was going to be a guest visitor mm -hmm. at a wonderful small institution, the University of the Ozarks mm -hmm. in northwest Arkansas. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm flying down there and I'm trying to think, how am I going to get these kids to understand what I do? And as I recall, I don't have the exact stats in my head, but you know, roughly 50% of the kids come from within 100 miles of the institution. Mm -hmm. Other than the 30% who are foreign students, most of the kids won't move to somewhere that's more than 300 miles. So I'm figuring, how can I connect them to this project that is, in its essence, global, in its essence, out there? And I get there, and in the first classroom, I realize how off I was, because it turns out 40% of the kids are going to be teachers. And they immediately knew the five things you can't teach, or you might lose your job in an American school, right? You can't talk about evolution. You can't talk about sex or sexuality or so forth. So they could list the things mm -hmm. that even in the heartland, if you will, mm -hmm. there are consequences for raising ideas that challenge power. Right? Mm -hmm. And we had the most amazing visit because they got it. They got it before I got there. Do you know? Right. So it isn't an over there thing. Yeah, yeah, You're yeah, right, yeah. the manifestations yeah. are yeah, different. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right that the historical contexts matter. They matter a lot. Right. But it, that isn't really the dynamic. The dynamic is power and ideas. And you're saying that's not going to go away, right? And you're trying to shift it. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, when you said it goes from death and imprisonment to lawsuits to an open, robust debate yeah. of values, right? That ideally we don't want to end up in a court of law or in a prison or sentenced to death, clearly, right? So a scholarship risk really helps and protects and saves people. But let's say even in this country, we wouldn't want this to end up in a court of law each time. No, of course not should end up somewhere else. So this brings us back to that. What's our ideal onboarding training? Right? Yeah. What would be our ideal freshman seminar where we talk to each other before we get into the substance? This is mm -hmm. how we're going to engage. Mm -hmm. These are the terms of engagement for bringing up ideas. And we want to bring up ideas that are uncomfortable. And we want to bring up ideas that mm -hmm. are challenging. Not because I'm trying to offend you. I'm not. right? But I'm trying to understand what you're bringing. I'm trying to understand the basis of what you're bringing, and I'm trying to, with you, have those bumps and knocks that shave the ideas down to better ideas, right? mm -hmm, that do mm -hmm. the curating, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So the answer is, what's the ideal? The ideal would be that really intense one-hour seminar where you leave the room a little tired, but nobody's offended, nobody's personally attacked, but real work was done. That's the ideal, right? And is this a meta-seminar on, on the kind of rules of conduct or how we actually engage and how to do this or you know what's missing you're saying something is missing actually and it leads to these kind of eruptions of a crisis and this whole crisis talk right well you know and again it's getting a little away from our work so I'm an observer on this yeah I think some of what's going on is we're still doing the historical work of equitable inclusion and that's really important and I wouldn't right. in any way want to minimize any of right. that right right what we can't do is do that at the exclusion of 
the exchange of ideas that's within the concept of academic right, freedom, right, right. right? Or within the concept of the quality and evidence base that's behind academic freedom, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So in one of the places this comes up is how do we credit experiential knowledge, right? Hmm. And we bring that into this space and how do we talk about it and contest it without contesting the identity of the person who's sharing the experiential knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. you know, this is outside of my pay grade, but that's what I think is going on, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. I think it will look different in different disciplines. Mm -hmm. I think some disciplines are probably better equipped to deal with this than others. But at the same time, I think they'd probably benefit more from talking across disciplines. Right. Because I think maybe we have allowed some of this to be treated as if it's the province of other disciplines. Right. And we haven't done it across the university hall. Right? I think that's something that connects to what you said at the very beginning, that universities are so complex today, so multi-layered. that I think by default, people gravitate into their own disciplines and departments and fields and subfields and sub-subfields, that there's not that much conversation across disciplines. So when you say, how do we deal with personal experience that can be born witness to, I can talk about it, this is my experience, et cetera, it doesn't trump another experience, and it's not really an argument, it's something else, it, but it has a status that has mm -hmm. to be recognized. That, I think, is better handled in certain fields than in other fields, and I think other fields are entirely at a loss of how to do that, because there isn't really a comprehensive or an open group of people. I teach lyric poetry, which is, I think, one of the fundamental modes of human expression. It originates really in the urge to speak. Mm -hmm. To me, this is so deeply linked to free speech. And people who do physics and math say this has nothing to do with what we do. Yeah. And I say, well, actually, this is the claim of a human being to have the space to articulate herself or himself and to be heard by others. The second part is very important, that actually to be heard by others who also have a right to express themselves. But this is a conversation that I can have in a literature department yeah. or a philosophy department. And people in physics, mm -hmm. yeah, that's what you do, but I don't do that. But then they're confronted with the fact that people do bring their experiences into a room or into a classroom, and they say, well, we have an idea of knowledge, truth, et cetera, that's established in very different ways. Clearly, in some disciplines, the rules for curating ideas are clearer, if you will, or at least mm -hmm. they appear to be clearer on the surface, right. I would say, right? Well, maybe they uh, are more, I don't know if they're clearer or whether they are more... Um, uniformly accepted or they've been codified in easier ways, whether they've been codified in ways that people can grasp and understand. You know what I mean? They have to be vetted, peer-reviewed, published in journals, they have to be experiments, yeah. they have to be repeatable experiments, they have to be statistical, certain numbers have to be met, it can't just be an aberration, etc. They have to be retested, all of this kind of stuff. Yeah. So scientific discourse, for example, has established itself as one to measure knowledge that's reliable. Right? So, so yeah. we accept that largely. Largely, although when we poke under the surface, yes. we know that there are problems with peer review right. and there are challenges for getting new sure. schools of thought in and so forth and so on. So, it, you know, it's there. Yeah. And then that, that also leaves aside the human dimension of yeah. actors in yeah. that space. Yeah. Yeah, right. It pretends that they can act as the sort of average physicist without bringing in other baggages and so forth. But I do accept that some of them appear at least yeah. to be cleaner yeah. or clearer yeah, yeah. than others. That's one of the arguments for why we have universities, right? Is so that we can have these things spread across disciplines. Right. And so have some of the desire for objectivity from the sciences blend over to the social sciences and humanities right. and have some of the realization that this is sticky and messy stuff blend over to the sciences, right? right? So it's why there should be an umbrella. I think what we've probably not done enough of, and when I say that, 
I don't mean in any way critically. I know that there are people at every institution that try to do these things. We're living through a transformation of higher education across every possible vector, so time is short. But we've underinvested in this first principles conversation of how are we different from out there? How are we different from a corporation? How do we maintain a community of discourse and learning Mm -hmm. while we're becoming specialized in different ways? And the way we talk about that in our work is how do we be proactive? Mm-hmm. I would hazard, if you wanted a percentage, the very, very, very high percentage of incidents where academic freedom is discussed on campuses after something happened. Mm-hmm. Something went wrong, mm-hmm. and then we're trying to deal with it, and we're trying to deal with it under time pressure, and sometimes under donor pressure, and sometimes under media pressure. Mm-hmm. And that is the worst possible way to get to mm-hmm. outcomes mm-hmm. that favor dialogue. Because right? you say what hadn't happened is that the values... And I want to be sure we got all the five values out. We're short on at least one. On one, they hadn't. Two, been, we've so two, you're saying yeah. they hadn't necessarily been articulated, discussed, and there's more than that. People have to actually have enough opportunities to discuss values, critically examine them, to share them. They can't be assigned and imposed. What like, I'm these saying are our is value, right? We need to reinvest in what I have previously called ritualizing the values of the university, right? So that we talk about them. We have some common general sense of definitions. We have a vocabulary so that it isn't the day after somebody said something terribly offensive that we talk about why it's so important to let them say that. But we've been saying it for years so you can understand whatever they said in the context of the larger exercise that this is, right? And so we have a set of workshops and training materials for promoting higher education values. And lesson one is there's five values, not one. And lesson two is we've got to be proactive about this. I want to get to the fifth one, though. We don't have the fifth one yet. Oh, so we We skipped autonomy. So equitable access. Equitable access. Academic freedom. Academic freedom. Accountability. So we skipped autonomy, institutional autonomy, which is sometimes described as the institutional version of academic freedom. That's important because when we get into both state institution issues, but also when we get institution faculty or institution student issues, Mm That usually manifests in the incidents that involve claims of academic freedom violation Mm -hmm. one way or another, or they manifest when states are trying to reach into the space and say, don't teach that, do teach this, and so forth. Or donors. Or donors It's a big dimension in the United States, maybe not so much in other dimensions, but the donors actually may want to exert some pressure who should get hired, what should get taught. Which is another reason why if we ritualize these conversations, if they're standard part of being Mm -hmm. here we inoculate ourselves to some degree. We create buffers that make it harder for intended or unintended donor pressure, right? Okay. right? Okay. Uh, so, for example, when I went to university, we had an honor code, right? You had to observe the honor code right. and no proctors in class and so forth. That was drilled into you from before you arrived at the mm-hmm. university and every class and every semester, honor code, honor code, honor code. Mm-hmm. Of course, there were violations, but it became part of the ethos right. of the institution. Right. We don't do that for the core values that we're saying are the values of the institution. So we need to do that. The last one is the messiest one. It feels a little bit like a catch-all, social responsibility. That's the one that I think too often we neglect in the U.S. incidents that we see, in part because we have what I think you and I have talked about before, the blessing and the curse of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Because we have it, because we as Americans have absorbed the fact that we all have these rights, Mm -hmm. we resort to it and we say, I have a First Amendment or I have an academic freedom right to Mm -hmm. do this, Mm -hmm. and that's end of conversation. So it's looked at as a right with very little or no responsibility. But if you look at the five values, you're just saying, okay, yeah, you have a right to do that, Mm -hmm. but is it the pedagogically best 
way to do it. Can you avoid the offense and still get to the learning point that you're trying mm-hmm. to get at, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's a challenge. So, and you can imagine any number of exercises that professors have developed, mm-hmm. in part to use shock or to use discomfort as an appropriate pedagogical tool to bring students to a new space. Right. But did they do it because they wanted to shock, or did they want, you know, so social responsibility is the place where we talk that out. Now, the purest defenders of academic freedom will say that's eroding academic freedom. And I would say, no, I don't think it is. I'm not saying a professor who mm-hmm. does a version of the exercise that maybe could have been avoided should be fired, right? So academic freedom says they can do it. Right. But it doesn't mean they can do it and not be criticized. So if you're saying, a, let's say they would say on academic freedom, that's fine. People would say we'd all have to stand up for that. But you're saying they're not doing well on the other values. They haven't recognized equitable access or social responsibility. They're not acting socially responsibly in a community where the point is to advance knowledge. And if shocking your students is your idea of pedagogy, you have to listen to people say that doesn't work with what these other values are, right? This is an isolated way of doing it and you're only emphasizing this one dimension that you have the right to show or talk about this in class or use this word. I would flip it around. Maybe it comes back to as I said, sort of the learned humility of my trip to the Ozarks or just knowing that Mm -hmm. I'm not an academic, I'm an outsider coming into this space. I'm not saying you should have. I'm saying, did you? Mm -hmm. Did Mm -hmm. you consider these other dimensions? Mm -hmm. Have you factored these in? Mm -hmm. And we as a group Mm -hmm. and a group of collective adults in which I include students, Mm -hmm. what's our goal, right? And our goal shouldn't be to win. Our goal right. should be that we're entering the space because right. I want to understand you right. and I want to understand what you can bring. Right. Right. And I want to create the conditions where you can understand each other. Right? Right. So th- I think we should be questioning, have mm-hmm. we accounted for these other values? And are we getting to the end, yeah. which is that best outcome? This makes universities into something quite different from what large parts of society are now, which is driven by social media, very fast give and take, and polemics. Michel Foucault has this really interesting example from mid-70s, and he says, and he doesn't engage in polemics, Foucault, attacked by lots of people, and he said, I don't do polemics because even in polemics, you give somebody a magic wand, and they could do whatever they want to the other person, they would make that person disappear. The point is to win, but the point is to win not by convincing the other person or changing your point of view and adjusting it, but to totally eliminate the other point of view. Yeah. And he said that is not conversation, debate, or dialogue. There's a bit of truth in that, that on social media, you see people want to get rid of the other person altogether, drive them off social media. No question. Block them, whatever. And it ends usually someone was blocked and there's a big scandal around it. But what you're saying, that university has to hang together through these values and the people go in to drive one value at the expense of all the other, that is no longer working then. So we had a project where we did workshops all around the world. This is part of our trying to explore and understand Mm -hmm. this space, right? Mm -hmm. Are we just projecting a northern version or what is really the issue? And so we would bring people from 20 different countries from around the world. And then we learned we'd always bring somebody from the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. And the first day was testimony. Everybody would Mm -hmm. say what was going on in their places, Mm -hmm. right? And the one from the other side of the world was there to show that the same things were happening in their country that were happening around here, right? Mm -hmm. So we had somebody from Malaysia come to Jordan and speak Mm -hmm. to all of us, In one of those workshops, we stumbled onto what I think is really the essence of all of this. We got into what's the difference between the university and the street, 
like mm -hmm. the street, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And basically, we all agree that in the street, even in places where legally the state doesn't allow it, there's a freedom to say an opinion, and it doesn't have to have any basis behind it. And it doesn't have to have any right. evidence. And you don't have to get into a discussion with anybody, right? right? And there's a line, and if you go too far, you'll get punched in the nose, right? right. Like, right. that's the street, right. right? But we agree that the university is different. Mm -hmm. That's not the purpose of the university, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Now, a footnote, I'm aware that in many places, including especially in the U.S., we have blended our streets and universities, especially at our public institutions, right? right. And right. so one building might be, for right. purposes of this conversation, right. street, and another right. one is right. campus. But anyway, we asked, what is it that makes the university different? And I'll never forget, it was the former president of a Palestinian university. He articulated to me that I've used ever since, which is, in the university, we leave our guns at the door, whether literally or figuratively. Mm -hmm. In this space, we relinquish resort to force to get our way, mm. right? Mm. So yes, we are still contesting, mm. but we have to do it with ideas, we have to do it with evidence, we have to do it with reason, we have to do it with patience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It takes time to mm -hmm. do this kind of stuff, right? So social media mm -hmm. is clearly not set up this way. I mean, it's such a devastating metaphor. It's also so real in America now with open carry laws and yeah, universities it's, where you can't restrict people bringing guns if they have a license. But yeah. what he's saying is you go into that space you're all going to leave that space. Mm -hmm. And you may have been challenged. You may actually have your point of view been decimated and said, actually, you're totally wrong and you got all of this wrong. But that doesn't mean you're leaving destroyed. No. right? You're leaving saying, I engaged in a really difficult conversation and I have to now regroup because my worldview has been shattered. But this means you're still leaving the room with the other people. It's not just yeah. the entry point, but actually the university has an outcome that people afterwards are still participating in this continual, longer conversation. And there are places where this is a literal expression, right? Right. Or very close to literal right. in places where people are monitoring and reporting on what is discussed in the classroom, and the next thing you know, the professor's arrested. But this is also a figurative thing really in our own hearts and our own minds, mm -hmm. in our own safe places. Mm -hmm. When a colleague articulate something, mm -hmm. are we listening for what they're trying to say? Mm -hmm. Are we attacking on what we want to say? Right. You know, And have we left our guns at the door or not? Right. And you're absolutely right. That's very different from social media. It's very different from our open, broad political discourse right now. And to me, that is also one of the reasons that universities should be supported by the public, that mm -hmm. this is a space where mm -hmm. we can try to do this mm -hmm. and we can try to teach young people to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you something about this idea of values. I reread Alan Bloom's book, The Closing of the American Mind. You probably haven't read it recently. Mm -hmm. Probably very few people have. I'm not sure if many people really read it actually ever. Mm -hmm. But it kind of launched the culture wars, and it became a talking point in the culture wars in the 90s, and it's still a talking point today, which is quite interesting. So the one thing I found really striking about Alan Bloom's book, it's not a terrible book, really. He's very angry and upset about what happened at Cornell in the late 60s, the Black Studies Department, so very, very upset, and there's a certain trauma in the book. But he says, universities have given up on values. This is the whole claim. And so the conservative seized on this book and says, see what happened to universities? They don't talk about values. The one funny thing is that actually he is outraged that free speech has become an abstract principle. Mm -hmm. And he says the devastation that's been wreaked is Oliver Wendell Holmes and John Stuart Mill. They are the worst examples. So in some ways, the whole free speech debate uses the closing of the American mind. But he says these have become empty, abstract concepts, not filled with lived experience, and therefore don't serve any purpose, but they actually undermine and destroy the whole purpose of all the other values you just described. 
But why I'm bringing it up is not because I want you to talk about Alan Bloom, but because the conservatives took that for a long time. And I think there's been a reluctance or a kind of hesitation on the side of, roughly speaking, liberals like me to talk about values. Because yeah. it sounds conservative, family values. It's another great victory yeah. for the right. They took the values language. When they say family values, I don't feel addressed. I feel excluded. So they used all these, like Richard Wardy diagnosed this. They've taken all the symbolic words. But you're introducing something and you're saying this is important for everyone. You are saying we need to articulate the values of a university. And I'm interested in this because this word values really has a conservative ring to it, right? Sure. In certain ways. So do, have you encountered this at all? Or do people look at you and say, wait, 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 Rob, you. <laughs> what? Sure. But again, remember, most of our work is around the world, right? And most of it's the extreme cases. Mm -hmm. So if I were to have a conversation with Bloom about the book, I'd say, okay, but let's talk first to these guys, to these scholars, to mm -hmm. these men and women mm -hmm. who have been physically targeted mm -hmm. because of what they've said, mm -hmm. right? So maybe the manifestations over here that he was looking at have lost some of their dynamism, mm -hmm. but I guarantee you in the global context, the dynamism is there, yeah. right? Yeah. The second piece of that is, yeah, the terms have been co-opted by various sides, but the essence of the meaning is still has value, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think that yeah. we as a society, now I'm, I'm an American, so I'm speaking about America, yeah. and I'm speaking outside of expertise, but as an individual, I think we have correctly spent the last several decades destroying boxes because those boxes were violating one of the values that I'm talking about, which is equitable access, mm -hmm. right? And who gets to be in the, right. the dialogue, right. right? So that was a very good exercise mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. But some of those boxes were also containing essences of things that are valuable for everybody, mm -hmm. and we need to reconstruct that. And so I think when I say we need to, in my latest dream project, how do we do onboarding about these? Right, right, right. That's what we're doing. We're reconstructing what was the right good essence mm -hmm. without the obstructive labels mm -hmm. and boxes and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some of that is going to be have to recontesting terms if others have captured them for the purposes of milking whatever essence they could right, out of them right, consistent right. with a different agenda. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, I think that's really an important part of your project to go into this space and say, we have to invest them with real meaning and the way you're doing it to say, in the international context, we also should be quite careful not to use these terms. In some ways, I think in America, they bandied about and sort of, we have a crisis here. If you look at the report you issue every year, Scholars at Risk, there are crises and then there are crises. And what's happening in India and in Hungary and in Poland and in Turkey and in many other countries, it's so grave. I talked to a colleague from India on Saturday and she said, every morning I wake up and I'm not sure I can really make it here. And I have, my life is an academic here. I'm in one of the most prestigious universities. But she said, I just don't know whether we can continue because of the public's attack on universities. Yeah. Not just the government, but that the public has been turned against universities. Again, the manifestations are definitely more yeah. severe yeah, in other yeah, places. Right. Many other places don't have the extraordinarily rich either sector, the structures of the mm -hmm. sector, or the rich tradition of academic freedom that has been cultivated by the AUP and others here in the US. So we do have those pluses. On the other hand, the topsoil of academic freedom, of democratic principles, is very thin everywhere, right? So I wouldn't 
diminish mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the concerns. I wouldn't be alarmist about the concerns of the day, but I right. also wouldn't diminish right, them. Right, right. And I think when we look at what's going on in Central Europe right now, Central and Eastern Europe, we see places that had reasonably good democratic structures that are eroding very, very quickly. Mm. I was at an event in Copenhagen, which was located Until in Budapest and had to now relocate to Vienna right. because of direct targeting by the state. And the state has now moved on to direct targeting of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, one of the oldest academies in the world. So we have a direct assault on this space right. where ideas can question power. And Michael Ignatieff from the Central European University was there. And Michael said to the gathering of people who are obviously from Europe, he said, look, a number of the countries in the club are no longer democratic. Mm -hmm. And they're only two hours away by flight. Mm -hmm. So the threats are real. Mm -hmm. In our work, everything's grounded in the cases. So all of this lovely theoretical conversation we're having, it's really observations based on the dynamics that we see in the cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We ask academics, students, and institutions in safe places mm -hmm. to help us in defending those in other places, in part because we're trying to defend those individuals in those places, right. but in part because that's the front line for the fight that we're all on. Right. And if we defend them when we're doing that, we'll also be on alert when the types of pressures start to arise that mm -hmm. we're seeing in Hungary and Poland and so mm -hmm. forth. Let me ask you this dream project you have of these onboarding or let's say having a values conversation in universities. What could people do to actually start that? Because we have uh, some 4,000 universities in this country and colleges. There are many, many more you work with in your network all around the world. Yeah. So it's not really going to be a top-down comprehensive effort most likely, but lots of people who may listen are actually either having friends who are in college, are college students, are teaching, or would like to be in a university, or take a great interest in the university for other reasons. Yeah. Well, we have on our website, we have our guidebook on promoting higher education values. And in it, we have a list that's an incomplete, growing list of concrete steps that institution can take to try mm -hmm. to develop a culture of values. Mm -hmm. One of them, very simple, number of institutions have it is you have an annual lecture or event on academic freedom. Mm -hmm. It's in the fall. When people get there, you make a big deal of it. It's just a way of saying this is part of who we are. Okay, I'm going right? to put a little pressure on this point. Yeah. I would be worried about that for the following reason, that it will isolate this one dimension yet again and say freedom of speech, First Amendment academic freedom, which is conflated in this country for obvious reasons, yeah. is the one thing. So I yeah. wonder whether you would then end up doing something that you said is really tricky to make one value the overriding one, as if it's the only one. And I 100% accept that point. Yeah. You're right. And yeah. it does do that. Yeah. But it's something. Right? Okay. So there's okay. some out there. Yeah. That's why I said in my ideal, yes. and I'm trying to get us there where we can help out and give the, right. the content, every institution in part of its orientation of new students would give at least 30 minutes to the values of the institution okay. yeah. and talk about what it's like, even model yeah. a seminar discussion for yeah. 15 minutes yeah. and show one way to raise a point that is problematic and one way to raise a point that isn't. Right. right? Right. And that's designed for both people, right, by the way. Right. It's not just for the person articulating the point. It's also for how do we receive right, right, these right, things and so forth, right? right? right. So that's 30 minutes. That's my right. dream, not asking right. forever. Right. You know, in a larger version, it would be an annual thing, right? right? Such as the various annual things that we're supposed to do to refresh ourselves on university right. policies and practices. University leaders would talk about this stuff a lot. I Most think the other part, just to go to the other values. I think the accountability one, that's a complicated one, but I think for students, when I'm thinking about the freshman year, and I've been teaching freshmen for a very long time, I think social responsibility, that we're part of a community where we're actually trying to all advance, 
and benefit from each other's presence. And the other one is equitable access, which becomes such a difficult issue because people see it as an admissions game. I have a lot of conversations on this podcast on affirmative action, which is the kind of flashpoint for this. Mm -hmm. And it's about access. That's what they look at. Did I get in? Did someone not get in? So in some ways, even for students and faculty to have a conversation of what is our value behind it versus just who got in this year? How many students do we have from this group? This conversation, I think, would be equally important because it also pits students against one another potentially, which is what's happening in the Harvard lawsuit, for instance. You know, I think you're absolutely right on that. And it is complicated because, especially here in the U.S., we ask universities to play so many different roles, right? And one of those roles has been societal transformation from outside the classroom, right? right? And I'm not against that, but that we have to acknowledge that's a different role. I think you can get at all of the values by focusing on what I believe is the essence of them, which is the space of the learning, mm-hmm. of the knowledge that mm-hmm. we're seeking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think when you ground it in that, it doesn't feel like it's a tribal competition and there are winners and losers, mm-hmm. right? And it's zero sum. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's saying we collectively want to create a community that will lead to the best, most valid knowledge. Mm-hmm. And these are all elements of it. Right? What do you say to students? And I've had this with a couple of people who say, this is all really good. But for me, it's really, I'm investing so much money, so much time. I may be working full time while I'm doing all this. I need to get a job afterwards. Yeah. So would they actually connect to this conversation? You're talking about knowledge. It seems a bit abstract and really philosophical. But I really just want to get this degree. I need to get this degree. Well, to some degree, you're calling out, do we really believe the first page of the about part of our university website, right? Yes. Right? I mean, is this about more than getting a better job? Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with going to university to get a better job. I think that's a good thing. But there are other ways to get good jobs, and there are other institutions. And some institutions may choose to be more of a training institution, right? Okay. right? Yeah. A professional institution. We will get you from here to there, yeah. right? And if that's what your mission statement is, then let's be honest about it and say it and do it. I even think in it most directly to a profession school, teaching is something else. I actually really deeply believe teaching is something else that's transformative. And this is a caricature if you're just conveying information to the students. That does not happen. I don't think anybody really teaches. I mean, you have kids, I have kids from kindergarten on. There's something else that happens, which is this human interaction. And we actually learn how to interact with other people. Right, right. I, so I this part would yeah. even be in a trade school kind of setting. But in the answer to, uh, I'm paying $60,000 a year, so right. I expect to get X. Right. Even if you want to bring it down all to that pure commodified right. version, right. then let's just be honest about that. But right, even right. in that exchange, there's room for the conversation with the client student or the customer student that says, okay, but don't you at least want the best right. Right. when you're here, right? Right. Right. right? right, right, right. And the best doesn't come from me just reciting to you. Right. It's an interaction. So I do think there's room for that. And I think, again, not my expertise, but part of this does come from our funding models and how we have chosen to support higher education that lend themselves to a sort of commodified sense of this space and a transactional sense. But I think that is unsatisfying, even to the student who's worried about the cost. And I think if we talk more about this is bigger than just your next job and we make that real, yeah. I mean, if we just talk about it, that's no good. But if we make it real, right. you know, and how many of us who went to university are lucky enough to remember one of those conversations, whether it was in class or right. with, you know, students late at night or whatever. But right. they're transformative events if you can package right, them. Right, right, right. So on your website, you articulate these values. I just want to point that out because I think that is actually useful. I mean, 
you know, a lot of people who may listen to this may be teachers or students who are actually students may also say, look, I'm going to think about this, but I would love to bring this up in a class or in an extracurricular setting. And what you have said in the middle of the conversation, these conversations ought to happen before there is a crisis, there is a challenge, there is a situation that people cannot resolve without having to act very quickly. Mm-hmm. And usually then by now, the bar is so low that it says, unless there is violence, we just have to respond in another way. And you think that should not be, I think, the parameters of a university. Like what you said to the former president of a Palestinian university, leaving the guns at the door should be the basic premise where we start and mm-hmm. not <laughs> we wait until this happens. Exactly. I mean, so that's our baseline. But it's the one that hopefully we can all agree on, right? Because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think if we're not agreeing on that when we're coming into this space, then we have much bigger Right. Problem. Right. So let's at least bring that out in the open and right. acknowledge right. that, but then take it from not just the physical, but all the way into the emotional and into the intellectual. Are we really living that? Yeah. If we did that, I think we'd see a great deal of progress in this area. Right. Yeah. You know. So yes, we have a guide on our website. It's case based. So we have a supplement that includes case examples. We have advice to facilitators. If you want to run your own workshop, we give you the sort of learning points in each example, and you can work it through. But the big thing we emphasize in it is we don't offer a yes-no prescription. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't say, okay, here's the exercise. You did the exercise. This is what should have happened, yeah. right? Yeah. What we say are, what are the variables here? Yeah. How was it played out? Yeah. And it's one of the things we wrestle with in the office a lot, and some of our new staff, they always ask me, it is, what should the outcome be? And I always say our mental exercise should be is, what would we like the actor who is trying to live up to these values to have done? Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. What would the well-intended administrator do? What would the you know, value-supportive right, right, right. faculty member do? Right. All the values, not just the one, right? Right, right, right? And if it's an exercise where it seems like it's out of balance, where the academic is only thinking about academic freedom, we say, how would it change if they also thought about social That's responsibility? Right? Right. And usually the outcome may not change that much. The policy, practices, whatever actually happens, mm-hmm. but the dialogue will change mm-hmm. enormously, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. think that can create better outcomes in terms right. of legitimacy of process yeah. and so forth. Right. Yeah. Thank you. No, this is great. So I'll link to this. I mean, this is actually what you just said, that maybe the outcome won't change in a given situation, but the conversation will already shift. If I can, I'd also put in a plug. We do what we call our Global Congress. So we bring together the members of our network. We only do it every two years. Mm -hmm. It hasn't been in the United States for 10 years. Really? It's going to be in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore in March of 2020. Oh, great. Okay. The theme is truth, power, and society. So it's getting at all of the issues we just talked about. Well, which are things that are being discussed on a daily basis in Washington, D.C. As they should be. Truth, power, and society. Yeah. (laughs) We welcome people from universities all over the country, all over the world, including faculty, students, administrators. And it's going to be a really great conversation taking us deeper into these directions. Great. Thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's really my pleasure. And thank you for doing the podcast. These are important discussions. Thank you. Great. (laughs)